This podcast is available in video at fpcgolfport.org and fpcgolfport on YouTube. Does the devil think that he can win? Does the devil really think that he can be victorious? Does the devil, when he's thinking about God, think that he himself can overthrow God, maybe become God, defeat God, put God under his foot? Does the devil think he can win? See, in today's text, we're considering this famous temptation, this famous battle that occurred when Jesus went out in the wilderness and the devil tempted him there for 40 days. And as we consider this lengthy temptation, you and I, sometimes we give into things at just a heartbeat. Well, for 40 days, he's tempted here. And as he's tempted, it's reasonable for us to wonder, did the devil really think that Jesus was going to give in? Did the devil tempt him thinking that maybe any moment he's going to break, any moment? He's going to cave. What do you think? Does the devil really believe that he can win? Well, it probably depends on how you define winning. See, we tend to define winning through the lens of sports analogies. You think of wrestling or boxing or what have you. You have a protagonist, you have an antagonist, you have two men. They enter the ring, one walks out, one is flat on their back. We tend to think of winning in the sense is the last man standing is the winner. If you play a board game, there's a winner and there's a loser. There's one who's victorious, who's quashed the other enemies, the other pieces are off the board. There's one clear winner and there's one clear loser. Now, under that definition, we believe that God can only be victorious. The God who created all things is always going to be victorious over the created, which includes Satan himself. We believe God is bigger. We believe God is stronger. We believe God is mightier. And we're right to believe it because he is. And because of that, we necessarily conclude that only God can win. If there's any conflict between God and the devil, if there's any conflict between creator and created, our sense of the amount of power that our God has suggests that he alone can win. Well, don't you think the devil has some grasp of that as well? Well, possibly. But here's the thing. I don't think the devil defines victory along the same lines that we do. I don't think that the devil believes he can actually outmuscle God. But, but, he may have thought, and he may yet still think, that he and God could at least be equals. And I can prove this from Scripture. Isaiah chapter 14, we see that vain mindset, that same mindset in Isaiah 14, which says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. Now listen here. And I will be like the most high. This is an accusation to the pride that was in the devil's heart when he was cast from heavens. The devil thought he could set up a throne, that he could have this authority over all the things that God had made. And in his heart of hearts, he said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like, like the Most High God. The devil has always aspired to be like, in terms of power and authority, God himself. But, is that ever going to happen? Well, no. But, but here's the thing. If the devil could not of his own volition rise up, to God's level of power and authority, if he could not rise up to God's level, then perhaps that equality could still yet be derived by bringing God 
down to his. And that's what we see in the temptations. The devil's attempts through the humanity of Jesus Christ introducing sin into the Godhead that might not yet raise the devil up to God's level, but it would have the net effect if the Son of God was to sin of bringing him down to his. Let me give you another example using terms we might be more familiar with as parents. You know, when a child rebels, the child doesn't necessarily think that through that rebellion that they're going to supplant the parent. When a child rebels against their parent, they don't necessarily think they're going to conquer or supplant their parent as a result of having done so. That sort of domination is not the main point or not the main objective. To a child, winning, winning and dealing with a parent is not necessarily about destroying their parents. That's not a practical outcome. But what if you can make your parent sin or fall or fail, slip in some major way? Well, in that case, you're both wrong. And what child doesn't love it when their parent has to apologize to them? If a child can bring a parent down to their level, sometimes by frustrating them to such an extent that the parent sins or lashes out, that, by an especially obstinate child, can be viewed as a victory. In today's text, the devil is inviting the Son of God to sin. He's inviting the Son of God to get his hands dirty, to do something that he shouldn't do through a temptation of his humanity, his human flesh. And if Jesus had gone through with it, if he'd given in to the devil's temptations, if he had sinned and done something below his holy stature, below his holy standing, then it would only have been a matter of degree and not necessarily nature by which he and the devil would have been separated at that point because they both would have been sinners if it were to have happened. Of course, it didn't. And that's what we're going to see in today's text. All right, let's look at verses 1 and 2 and then we'll just work our way through the balance. Verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. Remember, that's where he was baptized. We talked about it last week. And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. In those days he ate nothing, and afterwards, when they had ended, he was hungry. So Jesus is baptized, and he's baptized near the Jordan River, which we discussed last week is a pretty desolate area. You start going down into the southeastern regions of Israel, it gets pretty stark really quick. The equivalent of tumbleweeds and snakes and dirt and not much else. With that said, that's by the Jordan. Well, he proceeded even further out into the legitimate flat-out wilderness. That's where he was led, where there was really nothing to see, nothing to do, certainly nothing to eat. So this is where he has gone here in verse 1. He goes out into the wilderness. In fact, he's led there by the Spirit. Now, why? What was the objective at this point? If God the Father, God the Spirit, if he was led out into the wilderness, then why? Why was he hand-delivered to one of the most rugged landscapes on earth in order to face one of the toughest adversaries on earth? Well, a theologian, uh, R.C. Sproul, used to make the case with regards to this text that because Jesus is the second Adam, we had the first Adam who fell, right? That's the first Adam. Well, Jesus is often referred to as the second Adam. And if he's the second Adam who needed to do all the things that the first Adam failed to do, then he also needed to be tempted as first Adam was. But in his case, he needed to stand up to that temptation as Adam didn't. If the first Adam failed, which he did, then the second Adam, Christ himself, the second Adam needed to stand up to temptation. In order to stand up to temptation, he needed to be tempted. And that's why it occurred here right out of the gate. Here in this text, Christ's temptation gave Jesus an opportunity to succeed where Adam had failed. With that said, you could not contextually come up with two more radically different environments in which to be tempted. 
You see, when Adam and Eve, when the snake slithered in, right, here's the thing. It didn't take 40 days of temptation to break him. From what we can tell, he came in and like the first thing he said was enough to convince him. He says, hey, you know, check out that tree, check out that fruit. It's actually really good. God just doesn't want you to have it. Go for it. And Eve said, hmm, sounds good. She went and ate. Give it to Adam. He ate. No 40 days. No lengthy amount of time. Beyond that, another difference between Adam's temptation and Christ's temptation is the environment. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, it was a garden. There was fruit, all sorts of wonderful things to eat and partake in. They were not having any physical discomfort. There was no rumbling in the tummy. There was nothing like that. In the garden, everything was going on along swimmingly. They had no special need. When they were tempted, it wasn't especially attractive to them because they were just hungering. Well, in Christ's case, he was. In Christ's case, he wasn't in a garden. He's in a wilderness. He didn't have all sorts of trees to eat. He had nothing to eat. The temptation in this environment could not have been more stark, much more different. Furthermore, if you think about Jesus when he was tempted, he was by himself. Adam and Eve, at least they had each other. At least there was some comfort, some backbone, some consolation of someone else there with you. But Jesus was by himself, so to speak. If ever there was a time in Christ's life and ministry where he might have been inclined to lower his divine standards just for a moment, when no one was looking, it was here. It was in the wilderness for these 40 days. And so guess what? That's naturally when the devil made his move. The devil will not play fair with you. He will seek you out, or his minions will seek you out, at those times when you're vulnerable. Not necessarily that times when you're the most strongest, so to speak, but in those times you're most inclined to give in to temptation. Guess what? That's often when temptation appears. All right, let's look at verses 3 and 4. And the devil said to him, If... You are the son of God. Look at that word if, because I'm going to return to it. If you are the son of God, then command this stone to become bread. You're hungering, Jesus. I can see you're hungry. You're wasting away there. I can see your ribs. Oh, gosh, just give the word, and you can have all the food you want. Come on, do it, do it, do it. Command that stone. Become bread. Then eat up. You'll feel so much better. Oh, I hate to see you this way, Jesus. Just enjoy some of this tasty bread that you can have in just a heartbeat, if you'll just do it. If you'll just do it. But verse 4, but Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You know, back in maybe 1991 or so, I went hiking with a friend near Boulder, Colorado. We left the college town there. And we thought we were fairly well provisioned. It was kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing. I was out there visiting him for a week. We thought, hey, let's go in the flat irons and hang out overnight and have a campfire and the like. So, you know, we weren't thinking real clearly. We thought, all right, well, what do we need? Well, we need a couple sleeping bags. You get the matches. I'll get the food. We'll do this, that, and the other thing. So we kind of tried to provision ourselves. It was just an overnight sort of thing. With that said, we didn't actually check that the other person had everything. And so we get up in the hills. It starts to get, I don't know, it's probably 5, 36 o'clock. It starts to get a little darker. And we're up there far enough where we're pretty much committed at this point. And it was then that we realized that no one brought the food. We had the matches, we had the sleeping bags, you know, we had bug spray or what have you, but no food, absolutely no food. And for a heartbeat, I thought, well, this is my chance. You know, it's like those TV shows, you know, the survivor man or whatnot goes out and this is my chance to wrangle some food. Well, you know, no, 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 no. It got dark pretty much instantly. So there we were, you know, with our fire and nothing to cook on it. And it didn't take long before we realized that we were hungry. 
You know, we went to sleep that night with the rumbling of our stomachs about the only thing that could be heard. One night, I remember that and thinking, boy, that was a bad call. I was pretty hungry. With that said, Jesus is out in the Judean wilderness, not just for one night, but we see here for 40 days. It would be fair to say that he was probably starving at this point. And the devil knew it. Again, the devil knows our weaknesses. The devil knows the needs we have in the flesh, and he knew it here. And because he's a master of timing, he knew that a sin, if it were to be engendered by Jesus, would be far more likely when his defenses were down and when he had a great need in the flesh, particularly the need for food. In your own walk, as we said a few moments ago, it's in the sort of moments where your defenses are down, where your needs are great, where you're feeling vulnerable, where you're probably isolated. It's in those moments that the forked tongue speaks, where we're inclined to give in to impulses that may be external to us. With that said, let me be really clear about something. The devil can't be in all places at all times. And I will tell you this much, you don't need the devil to defeat you. You're defeated by your flesh far more than you possibly know. Your own flesh trips you up. Our own flesh is capable of tripping us far more that we don't need some external force to come in and breathe some evil into our ears in order for us to respond. We just trip ourselves up just to the left and to the right. With that said, we're most vulnerable to doing this at those times when we're suffering in some way. And we're most vulnerable in those times when we're isolated from a community of believers. Honestly, there's no lone rangers in the faith. Your chances of contending against sin and temptation are far better or far stronger if there's some oversight and accountability in your life or iron sharpening the iron where there's people praying for you, where you're praying for other people. These are necessary components of healthy spirituality, and they're also necessary if you're to stand in these hours. That's why the devil works to convince college kids that they don't need church. They leave youth group, they go out in the world, go off to do their own thing, and the devil will just encourage them to do so because it's in those moments that they're most likely to give in to temptation. They're easy pickings in those hours. With that said, while Jesus was alone, his human flesh was hungering, and it's at this point the devil sides up to him, points the rock, and says, if, if you really are the Son of God, then go ahead and turn this stone into bread. Now let's return to that word if there in, in verse 3. So the devil comes up. He knows who he's talking to. Jesus knew who he was, the devil knew who he was, Jesus knew the devil knew who he was, and yet, he still comes up, he still slithers in, so to speak, and he has the gall, the temerity to say, if you are the son of God, then turn the stone into bread. He didn't say, because you're the son of God, you can do this, or you should do it. He introduced the question, if you are the son of God. Now, I don't think the devil had any doubts about who Jesus was. And if he had any doubts, just rewind the clock back one chapter earlier. The baptism, what happened? You got Jesus goes under the water, the dove comes down, a voice comes from heaven. What does that say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This, this guy, the one coming out of the water, this is my son. One chapter later, what's the devil ask? If you're the son. If you're the son. Now, is that just a matter of semantics? No, no. It wasn't semantics in the garden when he came up to Eve. It's not semantics here. If the devil can change an article or a preposition here or there, and sometimes he does it in theology, and sometimes he does it in the academic secular world, if he can change our understanding of what words mean or introduce different words in placement of that which we hold to be true, he can cause us to question or doubt God or his promises and then to fall, to act accordingly. 
Undermining God's words and promises is always the devil's number one point of attack. Remember what we said previously. When the devil came into the garden, he's a serpent. Theoretically, I don't know, he could have bit Eve in the calf, could have wrapped himself around her neck. Didn't do that. Instead, he spoke. And he told her something wasn't true. And he caused her to question truth itself. And he caused her to question God. If he can change an article, a preposition, a verb, a vowel, an adjective, what have you, to prompt us to cause us to believe something else, then that's what he will do. And yet we see Christ's response, verse 3. In verse 3, Jesus, seeing what's going on, seeing that this is an attack on what God the Father just said one chapter earlier, Jesus returns to the word, this time to use it as a line of defense. And he says, it is written, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Every word, not some words, not these words in place of other words, but by every word of God, this is that which sustains us. And this is which was sustaining Christ. All right, let's look at verses 5 through 8. Verse 5. Then the devil, taking him up to a high mountain, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me, I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. All right. After Jesus passed the food test in verses 1 through 3, the devil says, all right, all right, recalibrating, recalibrating. Let's try something different. Let's stick and move here, and, and we'll try another temptation here. In particular, he says, I will give you power. I will give you authority over that which has been given to me. You know, sometimes we look outside at the world around us, and we think we're you know, going to carve out utopia here, and we forget that this world, in a sense, is under the jurisdiction, in a sense, of a very wicked, malevolent being. For reasons we might not fully understand, but for only a limited time, Satan has been granted certain powers. We saw it with Job, right? He's been given certain powers to do things, certain authority. A limited jurisdiction, yes, and yet he's been given certain powers. In John 12, he is referred to as the ruler of this world. Now, that's not to say that he's a sovereign ruler, because he is not. But at least temporarily, he has been given limited authority and jurisdiction. And so, within the bounds of that jurisdiction, in verse 6, Satan says, Hey, all that I've got to offer, all I've got to give, I will give you. I will give you the kingdoms of the world if, if. Here's the catch, Jesus. If, maybe just for a moment, if you'll just worship me. Maybe just a little genuflection, just, just, just for a moment. Come on, no one's around. No one's going to see you do it. It'll be between you and I. It'll be our little secret. If you do it, then I'll give you all, all of this. Now, would that be enticing to Jesus? I don't think so. If I go to bribe a billionaire, I'm not going to start with a dollar bill. I don't think I'm going to have much sway there. In the same way, I don't think you can entice Jesus by offering that which was already his. This is the one, the word of whose power upholds the universe itself, not just the kingdoms of this world. The whole universe is upheld by the breath, the power of this one. I don't think Satan was going to accomplish much of anything by trying this approach. So why did he do it? 
Well, here's the thing. This is an aside, but it's an important aside. Don't for a moment ever think that the devil is a rational creature. The devil is wildly irrational. And that's because sin is wildly irrational. Sin, by its very nature, is a created being saying, I have the authority over this choice, over this action in my life, no matter what you might say, and no matter how powerful you might be. Sin, it attempts to place the desires and volitional will of a created being above the creator. Sin is irrational. And so you cannot expect the chief sinner, the king of sin mountain, the devil himself, you can't expect him to be a terribly rational creature. That's not to say he's not smart, not to say he's not shrewd, but it was never a rational choice to try to contend against one who has the power to cast you into the pit. That was never a rational choice. It was never a wise choice. Sin is irrational. So to try to get into his head here, it won't work because it presupposes a logical, rational mind that there really is not there. Again, he's smart, shrewd, absolutely, but fundamentally irrational. So why did he do it? I don't know. Maybe he thought it was worth a try. Maybe he just wanted to try to get under Jesus' skin. Whatever the case, Jesus responds by quoting Scripture once again in verse 8. He says, For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God alone. All right, let's look at verses 9 through 12. Then he brought him to Jerusalem. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple, said to him, If you are the Son of God. See, he keeps up that same point of attack. If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down from here. For it's written. Notice this. The devil has caught on that Jesus likes things that are written. The devil's caught on that Jesus likes things that are in the book. So the devil says, aha, I'll tempt you and I'll use this it is written stuff. So he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you were to dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now the first temptation, at least in this chronology in Luke, that the devil offered was to Christ, his his flesh, his appetite. That was the first temptation. The second one was a little bit different. It was to power and authority. Well, the third temptation here is perhaps the most insidious because it tempted Christ's pride. You see, the devil knows something about pride because it was pride that came before the fall. It was pride that was the means by which the devil and one-third of the angelic host was cast from heaven. It was not about the devil's longing for food. It was not even so much about the devil's longing for power. It was about pride. Isaiah 41, which we read earlier, straightforwardly says, the devil became very full of himself. He saw in himself something that God certainly didn't see, and it was his pride that was his downfall. Well, here in this third temptation, the devil is attempting to do the same thing. He's attempting to tempt Christ's pride. He takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, Hey, what? If you just jump down, fall down, jump off, what have you, you know the angels are going to make sure nothing happens to you. You know this. I know it. The American people know it. If you jump off from this, everyone's going to see that you are this wonderful son of God, and they're going to see the angels bear you up. Come on. Give it a go. Nothing's going to happen to you, Jesus, if you jump. So why not? Just show everybody. Come on. Give it a try. So he tells them that this would be a good plan. And for what it's worth, nothing says that you're unique and special as much as by doing something that otherwise is suicidal with the expectation that God will not allow anything to happen to you. 
Nothing says, I am so unique and so special that I can do flat-out stupid things or suicidal things with the expectation that God will rescue me from them, that I can compel him by virtue of how wonderful I am to act on my behalf no matter what stupid thing I do. That's one of the most prideful things you can conjure up. And the devil's trying to get him to do this, to prove himself in verse 10. And he even appealed to Scripture to do it. Oh, what a scoundrel he is. The devil knows the Bible better than you or better than I. The devil knows the Bible. And in this case, he uses the Bible in order to try to defeat Jesus. He takes it out of context, which is always dangerous. Good hermeneutics, a study of Scripture, will always look at the Bible in context. Well, the devil takes it out of context as a way to try to go at Christ here. But Christ, once again, throws the Bible right back in the devil's lap and says, Hey, it's also been said. I hear what you're saying, devil, that these verses are in the Bible. You're right. But it's also been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. The devil tried to switch gears. It didn't work out. Jesus had an answer at every turn. And what's more, Jesus was faithful at every turn. All right, let's look at our last verse now, verse 13. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So the devil ends the temptations. Jesus stands up to him. The devil removes himself, departs, but he's waiting. He's watching. Specifically, he's waiting and watching for another opportunity. And that's what we see in, in verse 13. You know, in the book of James, James 4, 7, James himself wrote a statement that I think applies to this. You've probably heard this before. It goes something like this. If you resist the devil... He will flee from you. James 4, 7. If you resist the devil, he will depart. To some extent, when the devil messes around with the righteous, to some extent, when the devil messes around with those who are regenerated, born-again, blood-bought sons and daughters of the Most High God, who act accordingly, who shed light into dark places, this dark scoundrel, this wicked one, to some degree or extent, he does not like exposure to that light. And so he retreats, he departs, he flees. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Now let's presume that's true, which it is. Well, here's the thing, the opposite is also true. If you give in to temptation, if you give in to the devil's wiles, if you give in to his minions' words, if you do these things, if you engage in darkness, you do that which you ought not do... Then the prince of darkness, his minions, or what have you, are probably not far removed from your life. They may even now be breathing down your neck. Is that where you're at today? Have you ever been there? Have you ever, through attending Bad Life Choice University, done a whole lot of things that you ought not do? Have you ever danced to the devil's tune and heard the devil's hiss? If you embrace dark Things. If you embrace that which is wicked, if you do that which you ought not do, all I can say is you're inviting uh, spiritual presence and negativity to accommodate you during that walk. However, if you resist, if you turn to righteousness, turn to the word, put yourself in church, pray to God, the devil as many as flee from such righteousness as this. And that's what we see in verse 13. The devil retreated, departed, fled here. He'd failed to satisfactorily tempt Jesus, so he departs and waits for another time. The devil does not play fair. He picks on us when we're weak and alone, and it suggests that's exactly what he was going to do here. He was going to wait for an opportune time. All right, let me wrap up with a quick observation. As we've seen in today's text, 
What set Jesus apart from the first Adam, what sets Jesus apart from you and I, is that he was tempted in ways that we are, and yet he was without sin. What sets Jesus apart is that he was tempted and tried. He lived a life, 33 some odd years. He was tempted and tried in his humanity. He got hungry. All these different things happened to Jesus. And yet when they happened, he gave them a stiff arm to temptation. He gave a stiff arm and he kept on trucking down in the field. When he was tempted, he did not surrender. As a pastor, a counselor at times, as a sinner myself, as a student of human nature, I think that we give in to temptation numerically probably more often than we resist it. I think when we're tempted, especially in the flesh, I think we're inclined, whether it's keeping promises, keeping diets, keeping our mouths shut, the amount of time that we rein in our fallen nature is probably outnumbered by those times that we indulge it. And if that's true, if that's even close to true, if the percentages are even close to accurate, then how thankful am I? How thankful should we all be? That Jesus, when he was put in similar circumstances, that he never once gave in. If you and I give in more temptation, more times than we can count, how grateful am I? How grateful are we all that Jesus never did? Because if he had given in, even once, even in today's text, when no one was looking, he made one rock into a piece of bread, one pebble into a jelly bean. If he had done so much as that, he would have been a sinner. And if he was a sinner, then he would not be an acceptable substitute for you and I. If Jesus Christ had ever once sinned, then on the day yet to come, he would face wrath for his own sin and he could not pay for yours. The whole idea of him being a propitiation, a payment, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world is predicated on his sinlessness. On the cross, our sin was placed upon him who knew no sin. And on the cross, his righteousness was credited to us. We need both. You need your sin removed, absolutely. But furthermore, you need the righteousness of Christ applied to you. Jesus Christ died the death that you should have died, but he also lived the life that you should have lived. His passive obedience in going to the cross is good and necessary, but so is his active obedience in standing up to temptation. Because now when you stand before God on the day yet to come, God doesn't just see you as forgiven, he also sees you as righteous. How is that possible? Because when he looks at you, he sees you clad in the righteousness of his own son. The white robe of righteousness we will bear on that day is not our own. It can't be, it won't be, but it is the righteousness of Christ. Make no mistake, our salvation hung in the balance every bit as much in the wilderness as it did on the cross. Unlike the time when Adam was tempted, Jesus came through. As we head towards Resurrection Sunday a few weeks from now, it is good to remember this. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.